0: Welcome to Kevin Connor's podcast. This current series of messages is on the book of Acts, showing its relevance for today as a pattern book for the operation of the Holy Spirit through the church. Be sure also to get a copy of Kevin's commentary on the book of Acts. Visit kevinconner.org for details. All right, let's turn our Bibles tonight to Acts chapter 4, and uh, we'll try and uh, touch on some of the high spots on this chapter. Mark uh, Acts chapter 4. Now, as we uh, looked in our last session, we, we saw that uh, Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 really belong to each other in the sense that uh, they sent around the healing of the uh, lame man at the gate called Beautiful, and in chapter 3, as we saw in our last session, this man was healed after being uh, lame for 40 years, and uh, there's been rejoicing as he went walking and leaping and praising God into the temple. And then uh, in our last session, we looked at Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts, and particularly dwelt, uh, dealt upon the uh, times of restitution, the five R's there. Repentance, refreshing, restitution, retaining, and receiving, the heavens receiving until the times of restitution. Now in chapter 4, we'll pick up here and some of the main uh, things we'll look at in this chapter. Verse 1, And as they spake unto the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, and not the type of laying on of hands in prophecy. They just laid hands on them further down. And put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. It came to pass in the morrow that their rulers and the elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at nought of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, I want you to notice what's happening here and uh, we're seeing the fulfillment of some Old Testament scriptures here as well that we'll uh, weave into the course of our session here. First of all, the man has been miraculously healed and uh, I don't know how you feel when you read the the Gospels, particularly let alone the New Testament. I never cease to be amazed uh, how the scribes and the Pharisees, instead of rejoicing when people are healed... They really get up in arms. Can can you understand that? And you know the times that they said to to, to the sick people who were here. Look, and, and, and Jesus had a had a uncanny way of just healing people on the Sabbath day. Do you think he did that deliberately? You know, because uh, you know when you go through the laws for the Jews on the Sabbath day, you couldn't even walk too fast. You know, as rabbis. You know, so-and-so was walking, So don't walk too fast, we're not allowed to sweat on the Sabbath. It's a sin to sweat. You know, and they had some of the most ridiculous laws. And so Jesus, I think, just for the sheer fun of it, <laughs> went around healing people on the Sabbath day, and they thought more of their blessed Sabbath than they did of people being healed. And so, uh, you know, they never seem to get rejoicing. And instead of seeing this man that's been, you know, laying for 40 years and wonderfully getting healed here and rejoicing with him and leaping and praising God and having a little dance in the temple there, which they could have, they really haul them on the carpet. So that never ceases to amaze me, the religious blindness that people can get into. Now, what happens here as, uh, as Peter is preaching to the people and his uh, sermon was preceded by a miracle... Uh, all the, the rulers come and take them and they really go before the Sanhedrin so I want you to notice what the Sanhedrin was in that day because it's very similar to what Jesus went before when he was crucified so let's put it up here, the Sanhedrin the Sanhedrin uh, consisted of actually 70 people altogether and it's just really interesting to note the order here because as we'll see uh, there's a particular psalm that is being fulfilled here quite remarkably here. And so first of all, we have the uh, one who was the high priest, and he was like the, uh, he was the president, uh, the high priest, the, he was like the senior minister, we might say, he was the high priest uh, in that time. So he was the chairman, high priest of the Sanhedrin. And then under him, they had 24 priests. So there was the high priest, and then there was 24 priests, and then under that there was twenty-four scribes and then under the twenty-four scribes we had twenty-two elders and altogether uh, with this there was seventy plus one making the the Sanhedrin the seventy elders of the Sanhedrin. Now as you look at this the high priest was like the, uh, the chairman uh, the, the senior guy he had the final say on things but the, chief, the, the, the 24 priests here represent the ecclesiastical. So they represented the uh, two things here, the ecclesiastical, I won't put it on the board here, but the ecclesiastical and the ceremonial. They represented the temple ministry. So their job was to uh, teach the word of the Lord and also to offer animal sacrifices and uh, receive the oblations and sacrifices and the offerings of the people in the priestly, the temple ministry. So that was why they were represented there, the 24 priests. But then when you come to the scribes, they they were the theologians and the hermeneuticians of that day. So they represented the theological. So uh, they were sort of the official interpreters of the Word of God. So while the priests were involved in the ecclesiastical part and the ceremonial part for the temple, the scribes were the official interpreters of the law, they were the theologians or the hermeneuticians. Now when you come to the elders, most of the elders it seem represented the people from the synagogues. So in the various synagogues around the various uh, cities and towns of uh, Judah, uh, and Palestine there, they represented the people. So there was a representation of priests and their approach to God in sacrifice. There was a representation of the scribes and their approach to the scriptures as the theologians, hermeticians and as representative of the people from the synagogue consisting. And then there was the high priest. So here they are all gathered and there's a few extra thrown in here as you'll see. Uh, there was Annas in verse 6 and Caiaphas and you remember that Jesus had been before Annas and Caiaphas here. At this time, uh, there were sort of two priests here, two, two high priests here. Annas and Caiaphas, uh, one was going to replace the other. So they were sort of joint priests together in this time. So uh, Jesus had been before Annas, uh, the high priest, and also Caiaphas, the high priest. He was the one that prophesied that it's expedient that one man die and the whole nation perish not. So here we have the uh, two high priests here, and now here's Peter and John. Jesus is uh, being crucified, buried, and as far as they're concerned, uh, he's dead. But now Peter and the apostles and the disciples are talking about Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and now they've not just got to face Jesus, they've got to face Peter and the apostles here. Now, one of the interesting things here, we'll add another lot here, included in this uh, lot here are the Sadducees. As we often say, uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. How many are glad for the English language where you can sort of play on words a little bit? Uh, Why don't you turn over to Acts chapter 23 on this point, Acts chapter 23, because there were basically three things that the Sadducees did not believe in. Acts chapter 23. And uh, we'll pick up in verse six, uh, 6 through to 8. Acts 23 verses 6 through to 8. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, and you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they were the worst enemies of Jesus. And In fact, one of the, the sad things is that when you look at this, the religious leaders of Christ's day, the priests, and the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all these leaders were at the crucifixion and they were at the judgment hall and we're told in Luke's gospel that the voice of the priests prevailed above that of the people. And as you read the scripture, you've got the whole implication that the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes were uh, sort of in among the people and stirring up the people. Ask for Barabbas, ask for Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. And just stirred up, just mob agitation there. And the voice of the priests were loudest. And yet they were the ones who were supposed to know the scriptures. Crucified Christ with a Bible under their arm and wearing their phylacteries and scriptures round their arms and everything like that. That's, that's the, the, I mean, there's no blindness like religious blindness. All right, so um, when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee. <laughs> that must have been quite exciting, wasn't it? I'm a Pharisee. <laughs> then why did he do that? And I'm the son of a Pharisee. <laughs> of the hope and the resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And the reason he did that was he, he wanted verse 7 to happen. And when he had so said there rose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the multitude was divided. You see, there's an old... Uh, I don't know who said this saying. I don't know whether it was a Napoleon Bonaparte or a devil. Uh, divide and conquer. So when Paul knew the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees didn't believe it, and he perceived that there was a two-party there, thought, "Oh, the best way is just to get the parties against each other, let them fight themselves out, and I'll sneak away." Right. For the Sadducees say. There is no resurrection, number one, neither angel, number two, nor spirit, number three. But the Pharisees con- confess both. So the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe in angelic beings or spirit beings, So, uh, but the Pharisees believe him, so Paul just throws, you know, like a spanner in the works here and divides and conquers. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 4 in the light of those comments. So as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So you see how this cut right across. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen, the resurrection of Christ as we've seen in our previous session, nearly every, every message in the book of Acts by Peter and Paul, about seven sermons of each, nearly every one of them mentioned the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the, the resurrection of Christ be not risen from the dead, then our faith is vain. So the resurrection of Christ. So naturally the Sadducees, when they hear this about Jesus being raised from the dead, they don't even believe in resurrection, let alone Jesus being raised from the dead. So they put him in the hole till the next day. Anyway, what's the result? 5,000 people. Now, we're getting a pretty big church here, aren't we? We have 120 in the upper room. Then we have 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. Now we have 5,000. How many is that in the church? 8,120. So I don't like to hear people say, well, I don't like big churches. Well, what would you have done in the early church? Okay. And as I sometimes uh, say, you know, people say, well, you're getting number conscious. Yes, there are numbers out there going to hell. I'd rather see the numbers in the house of the Lord and serving God, wouldn't you? Melbourne's a city of three and a quarter million people. Is there a quarter of a million genuine born again Christians in this city? I don't think so. That means over three million people are going to hell in this city. So yes, I am number conscious. I'd rather see people serving the Lord. So don't worry about a big church. Let God increase the church, amen. We can go to a dozen services if you want to. Hallelujah, thank you for that, hallelujah. All the rest of you said? Amen. Amen. So, you know, there's 8,120 people here so far serving the Lord. Praise God. It's harvest time. All right, now in verse 5, as we're looking at here, on the morrow we've got the rulers, the elders, the scribes, Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas, and uh, John and Alexander. And they bring in a lot of relatives here. As many as were the kindred of the high priest were gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, the second thing I want you to pick up here. So here, Peter and John are before, they're on on trial here. Peter and John are, are, are on trial here before the Sanhedrin and a lot of relatives there. And what are they being tried for? Because a man has been miraculously healed. Can you believe that? By the religious leaders. And so what's the question? Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power and by what name have you done this? Now, if you go back to verse 12 of chapter 3, what did people? Peter say? To the man in need, he said, look on us. But in uh, uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 12, when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people. You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? And why look ye so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk. So here they're picking up this sort of similar thought. By what power and by what name you've done this? And uh, verse 8 is interesting. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I thought he'd already been filled in Acts chapter 2. How many know that there's one baptism but many fillings? See, there's one baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's an initial baptism of in the Holy Spirit, an initial immersion in the Spirit, but you'll find through the book of Acts, several times, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So, uh, the Greek experts tell me that in Ephesians, when, when Paul says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, that the, the Greek tense is, be being filled, be continually filled with the Spirit. So, how many are filled with the Spirit tonight? See, a lot of people, well, half of us, none, nobody over here? How many feel with the Spirit? See, a lot of people say, I was filled with the Spirit 40 years ago. Yes, it sounds like you've got wigglies in it. You know? <laughs> Are you filled with the Spirit now? Be being filled with the Spirit. Be continually filled with the Spirit. So there's initial baptism, so we say, one baptism in the Spirit, but many feelings continually being filled. And so Peter's filled with the Spirit. And he says to the rulers and the elders, this very, this very man who had, you know, couldn't even answer a few maids as they're standing around the fire and deny the Lord. Aren't you one of them? No, and began to cuss and swear. Now he's not scared of the bunch here. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit, got some Holy Ghost boldness in him now. And so where he'd run away from a, a maid and deny the Lord and cuss and swear the Lord out, that he didn't know him, now he's standing before... And how many think this could be a very intimidating... <laughs> how would you like to be stand there before all this illustrious crowd you rulers of the people and elders of Israel if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at nought of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Hallelujah. Isn't that a great message? Short one. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marvelled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And I love verse 14, and beholding the man which was healed standing with them, (laughs) they could say nothing against it. How many would like to see some miracles like that? I would, I say, Lord, hurry up and do some of the miracles like this, not just internal miracles. It would be nice to see some real visible miracles. And standing there where people can say nothing against it. Newspaper, the medias, you know, the whole lot of them. Alright, so. I want you to note the use here throughout these chapters on the use of the name. Because that's the sort of the theme that's through these two chapters here. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 2 and remind ourselves of this theme of the name. Now, um, yes, Acts chapter 2 and verse verse 21. And he's quoting from the prophet Joel. shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So calling on the name of the Lord... And then in verse 36, we have the climax of that Pentecostal message. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And we spent a lot of time on that, the Lord Jesus Christ. The declaration of the triune name. The first thing that the Holy Spirit revealed on the day of Pentecost was the triune name of the triune God. The triune name to be invoked in water baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now chapter 3, verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then in verse uh, 16 of the same chapter, when uh, they are brought before the people, or standing before the people, and his name, it's not by our power or our holiness, but it's his name through faith in his name has made this man strong. Then go to chapter 4. You'll notice the theme of the name right through here. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, by what name have you done this? Verse 10. Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other name. In the other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved it's the saving name verse 17 they go aside and told them to go aside out of the council and conferred among themselves saying what shall we do to these men for indeed a notable miracle has been done by them that's evident to all that dwell in Jerusalem and we can't deny it the only thing we can do is verse 17 but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. I don't even like to say the name of Jesus. Well, what are they scared about the name for? See, if the person is dead, the name would be powerless. Wouldn't it? Can you do miracles in the name of Caesar, or Pilate, or Hitler, or Mussolini, or some other antichrist that was shot? The very fact that they have power in the name shows that Jesus is the back of the name. He lives. You can't use the name of the dead person. So they straightly threatened them to speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. You know, I mean, you teach in Jesus, you say Jesus resurrected. Well, we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe Jesus was resurrected, let alone anybody else. So don't even mention this name. Don't talk about the name. And uh, so Peter says, and John, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so I like verse 23, being let go, they went to their own company. How many are in your own company tonight? All five of us. And uh, they pray in verse 30, By stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. So, whole emphasis on the name. Now I want you to go back to uh, uh, Matthew's Gospel, and just a few verses here, and particularly from the Gospel of, of uh, John. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and before Jesus had been crucified and buried and raised from the dead he'd given them quite a lot of teaching about the use of his name so Matthew 18 verse 20 he says for where two or three are gathered together in my name not in any denominational name but in my name there I am or there am I in the midst of them so they're gathered in his name and that's the guarantee of his presence in the midst then uh Matthew chapter 10 verse 22 Jesus forewarns them and the several gospels confirm this that uh, uh, Matthew 10 verse 22 and ye shall be hated of all men what for? for my name's sake oh, are we hated if you heal the sick or hated if you uh, speak in tongues no, hated for his name's sake just mention you're a Christian Well, we're all Christians who do you think you are? You shall be hated of all men for namesake. You know, you can talk about Mussolini and Hitler and Napoleon Bonaparte, Bonaparte and all them. But the moment you talk about Jesus, something scary about that. I tell you, the only way to get room on a train is just hold your Bible up like this. And everybody will give you a seat. It works wonders. You will be hated of all men for my name's sake. And so uh, through the Gospels, Jesus warned that they would suffer for his name. Let me just read off uh, my notes, notes here. What stinging conviction would be upon the Sanhedrin and the high priests and rulers. It was evident that the disciples could not have done this of themselves which they had confessed. It was evident that it had been done by the power of a name. And they knew that the name could have no power unless the person whose name it was was alive. No one could use a dead person's name to do a notable miracle like this. It was irrefutable proof that the Christ they had crucified was alive and was backing up the use of his name on earth. The priests had paid the guards of the tomb large sums of money, probably the people's tithes and offerings and temple tax, to tell lies that they had been asleep. That always amazes me how they paid them large sums of money and say, while we were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body away. That is so contradictory because, can you see anybody do anything when you're asleep? And if they had been asleep, it was on pain of death. Because the body was Roman property. And so for these feeble little disciples, let alone the women there, to come along and break the seal of Rome on the tomb, and then uh, take the body away and steal it away. And what always amazes me, because it sort of becomes a greater miracle, when they stole the body of Jesus away, they took the body outside of the cloth and left the, the, the grave clothes in the shape of a cocoon. And while the, while the soldiers were sleeping seeing all this, <laughs> they, uh, they undid the turban that was around his head and folded it in a nice place by itself and left it there. I mean, just absolutely, that's miraculous, isn't it? They paid them to lie concerning the resurrection and the events of that morning. The Sanhedrin also knew that every true prophet of Jehovah in the Old Testament who prophesied and preached in the name of Jehovah or the Lord and had signs and wonders following their ministry had such an evidence as their credentials. The Old Testament prophets ministered in the name of the Lord God. The New Testament ministers preached in the name of the Lord Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ was not merely a theory or a doctrine Or a theological argument in the early church The name was a power It was a person Risen and ascended and glorified Living in the power of an endless life To stand behind and back up the use of that name The devil fears the name of Jesus in operation It is a living and powerful name Everybody said Amen Now let's go to John's Gospel here In John chapter 14 And uh, I'll just give you references here But I want to read it from the Amplified seeing it agrees with my doctrine here. John chapter 14, Jesus in the Gospels gives the disciples what uh, E.W. Kenyon calls the power of attorney to use his name. So in John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14 says, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, if anyone steadfastly believes in me, he will himself be able to do the things that I do, and he will do even greater things than these because I go to the Father and listen to the Amplified, and I will do, I myself will grant, whatever you may ask in my name, and in parenthesis they have, presenting all I am, So that the Father may be glorified and extolled in and through the Son. So whatever you ask in my name, presenting all I am. So when we say Father, I ask in the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are presenting all he is to the Father. The I am, the name that was revealed in the burning bush. And then in John 15 verse 21, or verse 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. I have appointed you, I have planted you, that you might go and bear fruit and keep on bearing, that your fruit may be lasting, that it may remain and abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, as presenting all that I am, he may give it to you. And then in John 16, verses 23 to 26, Amplified. And when that time comes, you will ask nothing of me, you will need to ask me no questions. I assure you most solemnly I tell you that my Father will grant you whatever you ask in my name presenting all I am up to this time you've not asked a single thing in my name that is presenting all I am but now ask and keep on asking and you will receive so that your joy and your gladness and your delight may be full and complete. At that time you will ask or pray in my name and I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf will be unnecessary for the Father himself tenderly loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from the Father so when Jesus said that in John 16 13, 14, 15, 16 he gave them the power of eternity the right to use his name nice. alright now just a couple of other things uh, I want you to look at before we are finished I want you to go to uh, Psalm 2 Psalm 2 and also Acts 4, if you can hold both those chapters and see how remarkably this psalm is being fulfilled Psalm 2 Psalm 2, and we'll compare it with Acts uh, chapter 4 and remember as we've said previously, they had no New Testament so anything that God was doing in their midst, they're quoting from the Old Testament now, Psalm 2 and then Acts 4, in Acts 4, I'll just remind you, they being let go, uh, they go to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And uh, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, you made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in, the, in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. They're quoting from Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage tumultuously assemble together? And the people... The heathen, the Gentiles, and the people, the people of Israel, imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth, Pilate, Herod, representing Rome, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together, Uh, the, the scribes and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the rulers of the temple, the elders and the priests, all there represented. So they're picking up Psalm 2, this prophetic psalm. Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, the Father, and against his anointed, the Son, saying, let us break their bands, the bondage of the Father and the Son, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to be under the Father and the Son. Break their bands, break their their cords, cast away their cords. And what's the response of God? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will have them in division. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set, literally, anointed my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And Jesus has ascended into the heavenly Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. And he says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Not just in the virgin birth, but he's begotten in the resurrection. And look at the promise of the Father to the Son. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And through the book of Acts we see Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly Zion, begotten by the resurrection. He's asking the Father, say, Father, as a son, I want my inheritance. And the Father is giving him the heathen for his inheritance as the gospel goes out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth ask of me the father's saying to Jesus ask of me and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance how many believe that Jesus is still receiving his inheritance today every time a soul is saved every time a heathen how many know we've got a lot of heathens in Australia we are a heathen nation do you think we're a Christian nation we're a heathen nation, so there's a lot of heathens out there who need to be saved. And every time a heathen accepts Christ as his saviour, that's part of his inheritance. And so, you know, as we witness and endeavour to lead people to the Lord and personal evangelism, when he gets saved, Lord Jesus, here's some more of your inheritance. Here's some more heathens getting saved. Catch them, Lord Jesus. Can you say hallelujah? And the uttermost parts of the earth, that's Australia and New Zealand. For thy possession. That's the psalm they're praying. All right, so the psalm two is being fulfilled. Now let's go back to Acts chapter four for our last few moments. Our time is just about through. I mean, you know that the word of God is totally inexhaustible. Now it's interesting. Uh, two other thoughts as we bring our session to conclusion here. In verse eleven. Peter is quoting from Psalm 118 concerning the stone. Now, in their prayer, they're quoted from Psalm 2. In verse 11, Peter is quoting from Psalm 118. And when he talks about the name of Jesus Christ, who they crucified, God raised from the dead, and the miracle that's been done in his name, which shows he's alive to back up the name, he says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders which has become the head of the corner. And one of the remarkable things about this, and we haven't got time to, uh, to develop this, but as you go through the scripture, Peter's sort of weaving two scriptures together. Way back in the book of Genesis, it sort of began here in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob comes to Bethel, and he takes a stone, and he anoints this stone, the anointed stone, and he called this stone Bethel. The third person of that trinity of man, anointed stone. And uh, what we find is this. As you put the story together, the jigsaw puzzle, you'll find that the, the, the builders in the city of Lutz, or Luz, as we say, Lutz, uh, they were building, and they came across a particular stone and a heap of stones, and they didn't know how to fit them into their program. So they threw this stone and these stones outside the city, And when Jacob came, it says, he took the stones, plural, of that place, set them up for pillows, a place of rest. And then after he had that significant dream of the angels of God ascending and descending upon the ladder, in the morning he took one stone, and the stone which was a pillow now becomes a pillar. And he sets it up and pours oil upon it and calls it Bethel, and makes a vow to pay tithes in connection with Bethel, the house of God. Now, it all began there, and as you go through, you'll find that in in Moses' time, he spoke to the stone, he spoke to the rock and waters, and then when you get to Psalm 118, which Peter's quoting, in fact, he's weaving Genesis 28 and Psalm 118, this is the stone which was set at night of you builders. Now, when you get to Acts chapter 4... The builders are there, the religious leaders. These are the guys. This is the stone that was set at naught by you builders, and you cast Christ out of the city, uh, or and his disciples, but out of this anointed stone, the incrusted rock, and out of that heap of stones, I'm going to build my church, Bethel, the house of God. This is the stone that was set at naught of you builders, but now he's become the chief cornerstone, the headstone. And then when Peter takes it up in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Christ is a living stone, you also are lively stones, and you've built up a spiritual house. And Peter is the one that takes up this whole theme, the saving name. All right, now let's turn to Acts chapter 4 as we finish here, and uh, we'll pick this up in a subsequent time. In verses 29 through to 31, we have what I believe are the four keys of the book of Acts the four keys when Jesus said to Peter and it was Peter that's talking upon this rock I'll build my church and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom we have four keys of the kingdom that are the four keys in the book of Acts let's say them I've circled them in my Bible verse 29 and now O Lord behold their threatenings and grant, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word everybody say thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name. Everybody say the name. The name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, everybody say prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody say all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spake the word of God with boldness. The four keys of the kingdom the four keys that were given to Peter, the four keys in the book of Acts are, number one the word, number two the name, number three the Holy Spirit and number four the prayer they were the four keys and you can just take a concordance and go through every reference in the book of Acts to the word, the name the prayer and the spirit and they are all interdependent upon one another It's the Holy Spirit that quickens the word. It's the Holy Spirit that gives power to the name, but it's the prayers of the saints that make those keys alive and active in our churches. Can we say amen tonight? Let's all stand. Father, we just thank you again for your inexhaustible word. And we thank you, Father, that we do not stand with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Ecclesiastics, but we stand on resurrection ground. And, Father, we just thank you that you've given us the power of eternity, the right to use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that uh, you are back of your name, that it's not a powerless name, but you are alive, you live in the power of an endless life. And, Father, we just thank you that you've committed unto us the power of eternity, the right to use the name of Jesus and Lord, we just pray that the name will not just be a magic formula on our lips, whether it be for baptism or prayer or praise or uh, healing or whatever the case may be. May the, 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 the power of that name be real as uh, it's joined to the living person of the living Christ. Bless your word to our hearts, Father. Let thy blessing be upon us now until we gather again in the precious name, and everybody said it, of the Lord Jesus Christ Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books and his ministry